Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. And it's October 25th, 2018. On this week's show, the end of a film festival monopoly, how you should be watching movies, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, we are live from Brooklyn, New York, and here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on the projects that you've been working on. It's been a long two weeks since I was last in Brooklyn, and I've gone through many trials in the space between. First off, uh, I have to say, Los Angeles, you're not so bad. I've given you a bad rap over the years, and I think it's because I was born with a Northern California bias, because you're sunny, and in the 90s in October, the people seem nice. And you got lots of good music, and now you're also home to at least half of our full-time No Film School staff. Um, And I wanted to at least mention our newest members of the staff who will be filling the void that Liz left when she went off to work for... Where do you work for now? Mr. Robert Redford. There you go. We're really excited to have them on the team, and some of you actually may already be reading their work on the site. So George Edelman is our new senior editor. Jason Hellerman is a new writer. And Jordan Aldridge will be joining us shortly as a complimentary tech editor to our own Charles Hayne, who, of course, you'll hear later on in the show. So welcome, guys. You're not currently here on the show because you're in Los Angeles and we're in Brooklyn, but welcome. And thank you for helping prove the old adage that it takes three men to fill the job of every one woman. You know, I knew you were going to say something <laughs> about that. Um, in some personal news, I have an announcement to make. Dun, dun, dun. I watched Mandy again, and I liked it even more the second time I saw it. What's Mandy? Mandy is a movie uh, that I saw at Sundance um, a couple months ago, and uh, since then it's expanded to theatrical release and a VOD release at the same time. And uh, I've actually heard that the uh, distribution company that's distributing the film, I'm not sure, I forget who it is, uh, I don't think it's Spectre Vision, I think they're just the production company, but... I hear that they're kind of regretting doing a VOD slash theatrical release at the same time because it's actually doing really well in theaters. Yeah, people are loving it. It's also, I think, our longest-running joke on the show. Uh, well, Jim John Jim is a... Uh, that's not a joke. That's a catchphrase. <laughs> well, we're not doing that anymore because we got called out for it on... Uh, one guy on... didn't like it, but lots of other people Oh, I can do. tell you more than one guy who doesn't <laughs> like it. He's sitting right here, and he's speaking into the microphone right now. And he definitely anonymously wrote that review. Maybe. <laughs> Anyways, now on to the news for this week. Uh, the first is a piece of news that was pretty surprising. Without a box, the uh, film festival submission website tool, whatever you want to call it, is now no more or will be no more next year. It's also just in time for me to have to redo everything on my own project, uh, which is cool. You know, the one year out of the 20 that it's been in existence, uh, womp, womp. they decide to, you know cancel the service, but without a box announced last Friday that it will be ending its services. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, without a box is the Amazon owned submission service that filmmakers would use as a one-stop shop to submit their films to festivals. Basically you set up a profile for your film and once all of the information is provided uh, and the screening link is placed into this profile, you simply have to just press a button and your film will basically be on its way. Without a Box was the official platform for Sundance and had been used by the LA Film Festival, the Toronto International Film Festival, and hundreds of smaller events, with a platform claiming it processed more than 100,000 submissions, which is probably true. 
Okay, so maybe I won't have to redo everything since the service won't officially be ending until 2019. If you do have a project that you're currently using without a box to submit for, here are some key dates to help prepare you for their phase-out next year. Submissions on Without a Box close on September 16th, 2019. That is the last day you'll be able to submit your project through Without a Box. And then access to Without a Box will close on October 30th, 2019. And this is the last day you will be able to review your submissions and projects on Without a Box. So that means it will be completely disabled on October 30th, 2019. Data must be exported by then in order to ensure historical preservation or just, you know, if you plan on submitting to any fall festivals, which there are quite a few, uh, you're not going to really be able to use it. So my advice is uh, don't use Without a Box if you're going to be submitting your project in 2019. Switch to Film Freeway as quickly as you can. Interestingly, earlier this year, the Sundance Institute actually renewed its exclusive agreement um, with Without a Box to handle its festival submissions for an additional three years. It was part of Without a Box's strategy to lock out competitors who had nibbled at its revenue. The exclusivity came at a cost, though, as Without a Box, who uh, was run, as I said, by Amazon, um, who also owns IMDb, was offering festival sponsorships, free advertising on IMDb, IMDb Pro coverage of the festival, and free marketing to certain filmmakers. So that's a lot of potential revenue options that they kind of just did away with in order to have that exclusivity right. There have been many signs that Without a Box was headed towards its downfall, however. At its inception in the year 2000, it became the first ever tool for online submission and caught on quickly. The innovation was embraced not only by filmmakers, who no longer had to search for eligibility requirements or mail DVDs, which must have been a pain in the ass, but also film festivals. Even though festivals had to pay upward of 18% of their admission fees to Without a Box, they saved on administration costs, and most importantly, they saw an increase in the number of submissions because it was actually easier for people to submit to festivals. I was around for that transition. Um, It was like early in my filmmaking career, and it made a huge difference. Like, can you imagine? You think it's a pain to transfer from one platform to another, but like... In my day, not really, at the very beginning of my day, we had to not only mail DVDs, but like fill out handwritten paperwork and write a check to every single festival over and over and over again. It was extremely time consuming. Well, IMDb realized how innovative this service was. um, And in 2008, they actually purchased Without a Box. uh, And at the time, they were a subsidiary of Amazon. Without a Box also had this patent-protected monopoly. So in 2001, they filed a patent which gave them protections for a quote-unquote internet-based film festival digital entry and back-office services suite model. And they had that patent for 20 years. So combined with Amazon's kind of massive legal resources, the patent was enough to scare off any competitor. Uh, And they did have a monopoly for a very long time. As Chris O'Fall explained in his article for IndieWire last week, however, that monopoly led to complacency and to without-a-box resentment inside the indie film community. There was a call to boycott the company in 2012 in the face of rising submission costs and product issues, including a secure streaming video feature that festival directors said was virtually unusable. So, in 2014, all this rabble opened the door for a four-person Canadian startup, Film Freeway, to steal at least half of its business. Before Film Freeway wrote a single line of code, it consulted with a leading patent law firm to ensure the programming didn't infringe on WAB's patent. 
In response, Without a Box invested in its tech, trying to compete with Film Freeway's user-friendly interface, but it was too little, too late for the aging giant. So, for example, this month, Alexa, which is Amazon's uh, website ranking um, service, in addition to being its weird uh, talk-at-me thing, what do you even call that, Uh, smart device? Alexa ranked Film Freeway three times higher than Without a Box, both domestically at number 5,649 versus number 14,350, and globally at 15,060 versus 45,425. So now Film Freeway finds itself in the unusual position of being the new monopoly. Uh, Founder Andrew Michael said the focus of his now 20-person company from four in 2014, will continue to be on the tech, updating its code daily and improving user experience. Recently, the company started offering festivals the ability to sell tickets on Film Freeway with no fees, and it's getting ready to create a free-of-charge DCP creation tool for customers, which is amazing. Wow. Um, This week, Film Freeway plans to announce a price reduction. Michael also promised the company will not use its position to force festivals into exclusive agreements. Uh, so they really got their head in the right place, it seems. And hopefully uh, they won't go the way of without a box and this monopoly won't go to their head. Again, I have to say that if you're trying to enter your short or feature onto the 2019 festival circuit, just use Film Freeway. Don't bother with without a box right now. Um, I think that they are still exclusive with Sundance, but the Sundance registration period is over anyways. So uh, you should be good. Film Freeway. Way to go. (laughs) Well, as that story shows, if there's one thing we know about the Internet, it's that it's always changing. The good news is that that means there's often new opportunities for creative people to get our work out there and hopefully even make some cash. In this week's quarterly update to creators from YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, whose name I really don't know. Those Polish ones get me every time. Wojcicki? I think it's Wojcicki. Yeah. Wojcicki. She, she announced that the company's investing $20 million in YouTube Learning, which is, quote, an initiative to support education-focused creators and expert organizations that create and curate high-quality learning content on YouTube, end quote. Part of that is going to a fund for creators who make multi-session learning content. That means if you're creating how-to videos for film and video stuff or a series of behind-the-scenes educational videos that happen to promote your films – or video essays about film techniques or history, you could potentially tap into those funds. There's a link for interested parties on the YouTube Creators blog, and it's a smart investment for YouTube, as apparently viewers watch more than 1 billion learning-related videos every day on the platform. And by the way, if you're interested in what else is doing well in terms of online video, the two-part Streamy Awards were held this week, and however unfortunate of a name the show has, its winners list at streamies.org is a great place to look for what's getting attention in the streaming world. Apropos of this story about educational content, the winner in the science or education category was Marquise Brownlee, better known as MKBHD, who makes tech and gear videos and who we featured on No Film School before. So video-related videos are hot, hot, hot. It's all very meta. And uh, just as Liz is saying, the internet is a ever-changing landscape and one that's pretty hard to predict, um, especially with this next news uh, which is that Superlux has uh, been shut down by Turner, their parent company, again. Uh, and this is sad news because mm. uh, we really liked Superlux at No Film School. We got the chance to, you know, talk with multiple artists who use the platform, and they really were 
creating some of the best short form video uh, in the internet, on the internet. And I have to say, even the like executives and um, development people that I met there were really, really cool. They had a really different vibe and attitude than some of the other kind of Hollywood places. Right. So as I said, Super Deluxe, Turner Broadcasting's home for wonderfully weird and wacky comedy is shutting down. Wonderfully weird, wacky, and also uber contemporary. Uh, probably some of the best like content of our time, I'd say. Just uh, content is a terrible word, but that's you know kind of what it was. So Deadline reported that Turner Media decided to axe the internet turned TV comedy hub 12 years after the company was first acquired, but it wasn't the first time that it had been shut down. Super Deluxe helped start the careers of some t- of today's best comedians, including Marie Bamford and Tim Heidecker. More recently, it was home to editor Vic Berger, who made some of the funniest political supercuts of our political mess of an era, Hype Beast Tabasco Sweet, Joanne the Scammer, and more. They even had a few of their short-form content videos premiere at Sundance and other festivals. I've interviewed a few of their talented artists over the past couple of years, as I said, uh, including people from a short called The Passage. Uh, on a podcast, I had Pipus Larson, Kendra Uncut, and Cold Game Kelv, a.k.a. Brother Nature, uh, a.k.a. that Deer Whisperer guy. I think probably some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, we had them on a podcast called Breaking the Algorithm, How to Make Your Video Stand Out Online, and also John Daly and Gil Ozeri, who are uh, two pretty famous comedians in their own right. They made a video for Super Deluxe, a short for film, I guess, for Super Deluxe. Um, and I interviewed them. So we'll link to all of those in the podcast post. As I said, this isn't the first time that Turner has shut down Super Deluxe. Uh, After launching in 2006, Super Deluxe was rolled into Adult Swim in 2008, and Turner decided to bring it back as a standalone network about three years ago with a focus on creating longer-form TV series, which instead shifted to this short-form comedy content. Uh, And they had some of the best social media I've ever seen. For what it's worth, I thought they were the best in the business at what they did, and it seemed like it was getting the kind of results that it was aiming for. But in a statement published by Deadline, Turner, which was, of course, recently acquired by AT&T, said, quote, There are now massive changes in the social and mobile-first ecosystem and duplication with other business units in our new Warner Media portfolio. Super Deluxe found inspiring ways of connecting with a new generation, and many of their best practices will be adopted by other Turner properties as we redirect this investment back into our portfolio. Ugh, it sounds like so cold. Yeah, it's very business-like and double-speaky. Prior to this shutdown, Super Deluxe said it had 52 million monthly users and 165 million monthly views across all social media platforms, which I can understand. In his own statement on Instagram, Dimitri Smikis, who oversaw short-form video at Super Deluxe beginning in early 2016, said, quote, My goal at the beginning was to make online videos for people who hate online videos, and we never pandered to our audience or treated them like idiots. Of course, that meant the old white men at the top never quite understood what we were doing, but in a way, that was the point. And now here's Charles Hain with the Gear News. Hello, everybody. This is Charles Hain here with Gear News this week. Top of the gear news, it's not actually breaking news. This laptop came out in July, but we spent two months working with the new 2018 MacBook Pro, and we didn't hate it. We actually kind of like it. So 
backstory here, we hated the 2016 MacBook Pro. For so many things, it wasn't any faster. Like, we still use a 2013 MacBook Pro because it's got NVIDIA, and filmmakers all love NVIDIA because we do a lot of GPU-accelerated processing with apps like DaVinci Resolve. So most filmmakers go NVIDIA when they can, and a lot of people were keeping the 2013-2015 MacBook Pro because you got original Thunderbolt ports, you got old USB and new USB, you even had an SD card reader. So when the 2016 came out and it was called MacBook Pro, but there was only one port left, no more MagSafe for when you trip on the cable, no more SD card, no more legacy USB, no more native HDMI, although it's been a while on that. Uh, I think a lot of people were really bummed and we returned our 2016 MacBook Pro. We hated it. Two years have gone by. The 2018 came out. No major exterior port changes. Same USB-C type uh, ports that are also Thunderbolt 3. Still no MagSafe. Still just a headphone port. But we like one now. Apple actually loaned us a 13-inch to play with, and we bought a 15-inch, and we like it. First off, it is significantly faster now than the 2013s and the 2015s. It is noticeably better. More RAM is the biggest thing you're getting, but you're also getting a faster processor, and clearly a lot of work has been done to actually make it feel faster. Is it as fast as a tower? Nope. If you're going to take a tower to set, this is not the option for you. But for a dedicated laptop person, it is significantly faster. But interestingly, like I still hate the touch bar, although I've started adding little stickers to the touch bar so that I can feel it in the dark as to where I'm touching. Um... And I'm still a little annoyed there's no SD card reader because an SD card reader is so thin and you could clearly fit one in there. And we use our SD card reader on our old laptop all the time. But here's what happened in two years. First off, Apple made the laptop a lot better. It is much faster and there's a lot of perks to it. And the keyboard is way improved over the 2016. It's quieter and all the iFixit teardown reports say it's going to last much longer and be way more durable. So between the keyboard and the speed, that's enough. But the other thing that happened is the infrastructure has started to grow up around Thunderbolt 3. For instance, there's the Blackmagic eGPU, which for certain applications really increases your speed and only works with these laptops, not with the Thunderbolt 2 laptops. There are still a lot of moments in our day-to-day life with this laptop that we've had for two weeks where we're like, oh, I forgot I don't have a Thunderbolt 3 cable for this one accessory I want to use right now. And then you go to B&H and you order it. And then you go to Amazon and you order it. And uh, you get the cable in the mail like two days later or whatever, but it's not there in the moment you need it. So there are frustrating moments like that. But enough things are coming out that are Thunderbolt 3 based that are actually legitimately using the power that it makes it a really interesting option. So we are fans of the laptop. Do we really wish they offered it with like touch bar and without touch bar so we could just buy it without touch bar? Absolutely. I honestly can say it right now. I'd pay an extra $100 not to have the touch bar. But it's Apple. They're not going to do that. Oh, my God. If we could have it without the touch bar and with the SD card, it'd be like the all-singing, all-dancing laptop of all time. Um, Anyway, so our review for the 2018 MacBook Pro is up. Next up in tech news, ShareGrid has launched a buy and sell marketplace. Now, this doesn't initially seem like huge news because, like, you can always buy and sell your old camera equipment on eBay. Or, like, I know people who have bought and sold stuff on Craigslist, and I've actually bought a car off Craigslist, so what am I saying? There's nothing wrong inherently with Craigslist. But those are massive markets with millions of people on them, right? The beauty of a dedicated marketplace, like even in automobiles, 
for the fancy stuff, you don't go to Craigslist. You go to something like Bring a Trailer, which is like a dedicated marketplace just for cars. And it does feel like it's really time for there to be a place where user profiles, because like on eBay, I can see a user profile, but it's like five-star rating, but most of that's from selling clothing. Now they're selling a vintage Airy 535. Do they know anything about maintaining it? Do they know? It? Do they even know what flange focal distance means? Or did they just find it in a state sale? The beauty of a buy and sell marketplace of filmmakers for filmmakers is you get the opportunity to be like, oh, wow, this person's selling a 535. They've been renting it for four years. They have good reviews on the rentals. They know all sorts of other people. Maybe we even have a friend income and maybe I've rented from them before. So there's like a real benefit there that I think is super interesting and useful, a community-based buy and sell platform of filmmakers. So they're also teaming up with Ablecine to launch like Hot deals? I don't know. It's like an internet thing where there's like a special buy. So as a promotional thing, you can get $500 off the small HD Bright right now with the launch of buy and sell from ShareGrid. Last up, the GH5 and the GH5S get new firmware with heavily improved autofocus. Now, the autofocus was never awful in the GH5 and the GH5S, but this is a big step forward for them. Uh... There's a lot of improvements in the functionality, and it's a really interesting move from Panasonic because it lets us know, A, that they're still working on cameras that have been out for like a year and a half now, which is nice. There are camera manufacturers who will be nameless that like eight months after the camera is purchased, you will never get an upgrade again. The fact that the GH5 has been out, what, January 17, and we're in fall of 18, and there's still updates coming out for it. And obviously, we know the GH6 is probably coming soon, or we can assume it's on its way, but they are continuing to improve it is great. Also, working on that improvement really shows paying attention to users, which in our experience are increasingly using autofocus way more than we were five years ago. And also, as a real shot at the bow at Sony, who are famed for their amazing autofocus on their full-frame mirrorless line. That is tech news this week. And in more Apple tech news, we will be at the Apple is having a pro event next Tuesday, October 30th. We'll be there. We'll be covering it. Take a look at the site to see our hot takes on Apple Pro gear. Rumors are that there might be a real pro laptop. In reality, the the like sane rumors seem to be pointing towards a new Mac mini. But then every once in a while you hear these wild rumors from people who might actually know better that we might see something with like a full-on PCI slot which would, like, make filmmakers dance with joy. Short of that, I think we can see assume we're going to see a new iPad Pro with face recognition and a new Mac Mini. But, hey, the Mac Mini's great. So I'm excited to see what is there next Tuesday at BAM here in Brooklyn. If you're there, say hi, and we will report on that next week. So we're actually combining two questions for Ask No Film School this week. Modmo Sam Adam asks, What was that DIT software Charles was asking about? Um, I'm Charles, so I could have also phrased that. What was that DIT software you were talking about? And then Mervyn James asks, how do you calculate how much storage you need on a project? And we thought we would answer them both since they combine a little bit of preparing for your shoot into one question. So first, Mervyn, I want to say, I wanted to answer your question specifically because this seems to come up all the time. I have a lot of students that like when they're going out to DIT for the first time, the producers are like, how many hard drives should I buy? And it's tricky because the DIT doesn't determine the shoot ratio and you need to know your shoot ratio to know how much space you need. So for instance, it might be a 10 page script, which we're expecting to be 10 minutes. 
But you don't want to go out and only buy 10 minutes of storage space because people usually shoot more footage than they end up using the final edit. And that ratio of how much you shoot to how much makes it in the final edit is your shooting ratio. Uh, back in the film days, it was often like 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. In the digital days, we see 50 to 1 quite often. And so that means a 10-minute project might shoot 500 minutes of source material to get to that final 10 minutes. So you need to talk to the DP if you're a DIT or, if, or anyone who's being asked for hard drive purchases. They ask the editor sometimes too. You need to talk to the DIT and the, direct, the DP and the director and be like, what's your typical shooting ratio? How much are you planning on shooting? St something like that. So you can get a sense of how many minutes they expect to shoot. So let's say it's a 10-minute final project. The director and DP, based on their previous work, they know that they're going to shoot about 20 to 1. So you need to buy 200 minutes of hard drive storage. The next question you need to ask is, what format are they shooting? Are they shooting red raw? Are they shooting very cam? Are they shooting raw and proxies at the same time or just raw? Once you know that, you can fire up, there was an app called Catadata, which I only recently found out was started by Emery from Frame.io. Before he did Frame.io, they did Catadata. Um, there's the Digital Rebellion video storage space tool. There's the AJA data calc. Um, you fire up one of those and you put in like 200 minutes of red raw 4K footage. 200 minutes of red cough, raw 4K should be 420 gigabytes, right? That's what you need to buy. But actually, no, that's not quite enough. I would say you want to buy like two 500 gigabyte drives because you never really want to fill a drive more than 80% full, so about 400 gigabytes. And you need at least two copies of your camera raw media to keep your footage safe. And actually, on pro shoots, you really want three. Uh, insurance companies are going to want three, but the rest of us, we will often get away with two. Now, if you want to make those two copies, what is that software download tool that Medmo asks about? Well, there's two major players, Pomfort and Shotput, and then there's this upstart hedge all competing to be the, we use it for downloading everything tool. Technically, you can use Finder to make copies, but it's not as reliable because it doesn't run a full checksum verification on the copy, and you don't get any reporting on like what copies you made. You have to keep track of everything yourself. Pomfort is like the, I was going to say Cadillac, but I don't know if that means anything anymore. Uh, Pomfort is the Lambo in the Bitcoin speak. It is the full-fledged LUTs and Silverstack for copies and management and all of your reports and everything. It is a phenomenal tool. And they actually have a more affordable Silverstack download manager now that's like at an indie student price point, but you can use it for your downloads. Shotput primarily focuses just on making sure your media is where you want it to be. It doesn't have all those color tools. It doesn't have some of the other tools, but Shotput is also very popular and very stable and will do multiple checksum verified copies. And those are the two big competitors. Let's say Toyota and Lexus, right? Because Toyota is great. Lexus is just a little sleeker. And then, uh, so... Pomfort's maybe Lexus, Shop puts maybe Toyota, but like I own a Toyota, or I did. Um, and then Hedge is uh, a smaller application, not specifically focused in the media industry, very much just focused on backup copies, making like a hedge in your backup. And they're all going to give you good information of verified copies, backup reports, all that good stuff. All right, everybody, I'll see you all next week. Thanks, Charles. And on to some indie movie openings this week. A film I saw at South by Southwest last year is coming to iTunes this weekend. 
Now, with the summer box office success of Won't You Be My Neighbor and RBG, kindness has played surprisingly well with audiences this year. And another surprise comes in an unlikely third documentary protagonist to join Mr. Rogers and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in making kindness cool again, Bill Murray. Murray has gained cult status in recent years due to his impromptu appearances in everyday people's lives, and that's precisely the phenomenon that's captured in the documentary called The Bill Murray Stories, Life Lessons Learned from a Mythical Man. It's not about John Fusco. I'm too young. <laughs> you, you will be a mythical man one day. Uh, filmmaker Tommy Avalone and his team went around the country getting people to recount their random encounters with Murray at their poetry readings, washing dishes at their house parties, roadieing for their bands, joining their engagement photo shoots. And a really endearing pattern emerges of Murray just wanting to put smiles on people's faces while also infusing a little joie de vivre and unpredictability into his own life. It's a fun watch, and I recommend it if you need a break from all the heavy stuff. And I also recommend you look out for my interview with Avaloni and his producer, Max Polucci, and DP Derek Kunzer that should be up on the site later this week. And on Amazon Prime Instant, you can catch You Were Never Really Here on October 28th. I've been waiting for this one for a really long time. Lynn Ramsey has a real talent for making brutally dark films. Just look at We Need to Talk About Kevin, for example. And You Were Never Really Here is no exception. Joaquin Phoenix won the Best Actor Award at Cannes in 2017 for his portrayal of a traumatized veteran, unafraid of violence, who tracks down missing girls for a living. When a job spins out of control, his nightmares overtake him as a conspiracy is uncovered, leading to what may be either his death trip or his awakening. One of the most surprising facts about this movie for me is that it's written by Jonathan Ames, who is perhaps better known as the series creator and writer of HBO's classic show, Bored to Death. That sounds really intense. i like to see that one. I hear it's super intense. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. And coming to Netflix on October 26th is Shirkers. This documentary premiered at Sundance last year where it won the World Cinema Documentary Directing Award. And it's now being distributed by, of course, Netflix. The original film Shirkers was the first ever Singaporean road trip flick. Directed by, at the time, a teenage Sandy Tan and George Cardona, an enigmatic American mentor twice her age, back in 1992. The original film was never completed, however, due to George running off with the footage and robbing Tan of her most personal work. Now, the 2018 documentary seeks less to question why the footage was stolen. George's motives uh, aren't entirely clear nor sane. Then to shift the power back to the young filmmaking team, now living across the globe, who made the film. While the subject matter sounds dire, the documentary embodies the voice and outlook of Tan. It's surprisingly good-humored and optimistic. It's actually filmed by Sandy Tan herself, who Eric Lures sat down with at Sundance to learn even more about her strange celluloid journey. You can read that interview on the site now called Shirkers, How a Filmmaker Reclaimed Her Lost Work and Turned It Into Sundance-Winning Doc. And coming to theaters on October 27th is Suspiria. This is the only film that Eric and I have ever seen together. And I think it's safe to say we both really enjoyed it. For fans of the original Suspiria, don't go in expecting to see a Dario Argento giallo film. And for fans of Call Me By Your Name, don't go in expecting to see some dude have sex with a peach. Where the original Suspiria is bright, colorful, and frenetic, this remake is instead grim, with a muted palette and utterly mesmerizing or hypnotic. It's directed by Luca Guadagnino, and it borrows much from its source material, but it's a reworking of almost everything plot-wise. The setting, character names, and a few themes are the same, but not much else, as Guadagnino actually ends up expanding the story to a two-and-a-half-hour runtime. In it, a darkness swirls at the center of a world-renowned dance company, one that will engulf the artistic director, an ambitious young dancer, and a grieving psychotherapist. Some will succumb to the nightmare, others will finally wake up. The film stars Tilda Swinton, Dakota Johnson, and Mia Goth. 
And also coming out on October 27th in theaters is Burning. This was one of my favorite films out of New York Film Festival this year and a Cannes favorite as well, where it won the F-I-P-R-E-S-C-I International Critics Prize for Best Film in the Competition Section. It's actually based on a short story by Haruki Murakami titled Barn Burning, and if you're a fan of the author, I definitely recommend checking it out. In it, a man named Jong Su starts a love affair with an old childhood friend named Hai Mei, who subsequently asks him to look after her cat while she's on a trip to Africa. Hai Mei comes back with a new mysterious and rich boyfriend named Ben, who she met on the trip, and the three develop a friendship that leads to a terrifying tragedy. The film was directed by Chang Dong Lee and stars Ah In Yu, Steven Yoon, and Jong Su Jean. I got a chance to sit down with Steven Yoon at New York Film Festival after seeing the film, and we'll be releasing our conversation as a podcast next Monday. Many of you may know him best as Glenn from The Walking Dead, but with this film and a starring role in another one of the year's biggest movies, Sorry to Bother You, he has truly had himself a breakout year. And we've got some upcoming grant and opportunity deadlines for you. First up on Halloween, that's October 31st, for those of you who somehow don't know. Uh, It's the deadline for the Frameline Completion Fund. For films that reflect the complexity of the LGBTQ community, this grant offers up to $5,000 per film for finishing funds, with $25,000 total to offer this granting season. For over a quarter century, Frameline has provided more than 140 grants to help ensure that LGBTQ plus film and video projects are completed and viewed by wider audiences. And another opportunity for you guys is AT&T Presents Untold Stories. Its deadline is until November 17th. This contest provides the opportunity for a single filmmaker to receive production funding of up to $1 million, a Tribeca Film Festival premiere, and distribution across AT&T platforms, including DirecTV Now. The chosen winner will also receive mentorship from seasoned industry professionals. The four runners-up projects will receive $10,000 grants to continue the development of their film. Applicants must apply with a thorough feature-length screenplay and a director already attached. Only one submission per applicant is allowed, and that submission must not have been distributed in theaters or have aired on any form of television, streaming, or public screening prior to April 2020 when the chosen film will premiere at Tribeca. Although the screenplay must be submitted in English, submissions for films intending to be subtitled are eligible. Gosh, what an amazing opportunity. A million bucks. I think that's the highest grant we've ever we ever talked about on the show. A million bucks to make a movie in a year. Pretty good. Pretty hard. But. Mm-hmm. And for festivals, October 25th marks the deadline for the Phoenix Film Festival, which takes place in Phoenix, Arizona, from April 4th to 14th, 2019. This has been named one of the 25 coolest film festivals and a top 50 worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine, otherwise known as John's Mom. Arizona's largest film festival, the Phoenix Film Festival, annually holds 300 screenings, amazing parties, and filmmaking seminars to capacity audiences of over 28,000. That's 28,000 per theater. That's... Who knew there were such big-ass theaters? You know, when they have all that desert space. Yeah. Phoenix is a, a, a good place for audiences. Anyways, on October 31st, or Halloween, uh, there is another deadline for the Oaxaca Film Festival. This is the earliest deadline possible, and because of that, it only costs $17 to submit. Nice. It takes place October 4th through the 10th, 2019, in Oaxaca, Mexico. And why wouldn't you want to go to Mexico? You know? You've been there, Liz. You've seen it. It's a... <laughs> It's a big country. Good, yeah. Oaxaca has good tequila. Mm-hmm. I so, mean, Oaxaca has good, um, excuse me, mezcal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's better. 
Movie Maker Magazine, or my mommy, the magazine for movie makers, calls it one of the top 50 best festivals in the world. And on November 1st, the River Run International Film Festival has a deadline. This film festival takes place April 19th, the 29th, 2019 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Each spring, River Run screens new narrative documentary, student, and animated films of all lengths from established and emerging filmmakers around the world. River Run has cash prizes and is an Academy Award qualifying festival for documentary and animated shorts. It was named one of Mom's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee in 2018. All right, John, what have you got for us this week in weekly words of wisdom? So as I said at the top of the show, I've been out of New York for a few weeks now, uh, but right before I left, and I was trying to like place, <laughs> it was kind of a crazy couple of weeks before uh, going on this little trip to the West Coast, but right before I left, I got the chance to sit down with uh, Bai Gan, director of one of this year's most intriguing films from the festival circuit, which was Long Day's Journey Into Night. And I caught that at New York Film Festival. So you'd never know from watching the film due to its measured pacing and mature themes that emanate heavy Wong Kar Wai vibes, but Gan is actually only 29 years old and he never went to film school. Instead, he learned to make films from online forums, like No Film School, and by watching movies. When I asked him how he watched movies to learn how to make his own, he replied, quote, I watched many, many things, and in them, all the things that you are supposed to observe as a filmmaker. It could be mise-en-scene, it could be performances of the actors, or the, way that the ac- or the way that they actually put together shots and edit films. I watch these films repeatedly in such a way that I can almost internalize the things that I have watched and observed. I'm not a good note-taker. I don't take notes. I'm very, very bad as a student. Therefore, I'm not trying to put together certain formulas and memorize them and try to apply them into my filmmaking. It's very much that through the process of watching these films and observing those things, the key things, they become part of my repertoire. They become part of my frame of reference. When I'm making films somehow, I have that wealth of frame of reference that I can draw from very organically and very naturally. It's just a matter of enriching your own frame of reference as a filmmaker, and when you need it, you can call them out and you can somehow utilize them at will. So I thought that was a pretty good uh, description of how you should be watching movies. And you can read the whole article with bygones, I always want to say bygones, but it's bygones, on the site. That is really, really impressive. I love his advice, and it makes me want to see the movie. It's a crazy movie. The first, It's like a two-hour movie, and the first hour is all in 2D, and then like maybe an hour and 15 minutes into the movie, the title comes up, and it's what? at that moment when you're supposed to put on 3D glasses, and the re- whole rest of the movie, the whole hour, the whole next hour is just this hour-long 3D one-take dream sequence. Um, it's pretty crazy. That's freaking bananas. Yeah. Wow. Check it out. Um, so got a couple shout outs to round out the show. New Fest kicked off here in New York last night with Yen Tan's 1985 as the opening night film. It's the 30th anniversary of New York's LGBT uh, film festival, and it's a feat worth celebrating. It's as old as John. No, it's older. Uh, it's older than me. I don't know. This is 30. Um, yeah, it's true. <laughs> the fest is extended seven days this year, so if you are in town, check out their great lineup. And our friends over at the Milwaukee Film Festival hit us up to remind us that their annual event is currently on and running through November 1st. It's got a great lineup that's notable for showcasing almost half female-directed films, including one I covered back at South by Southwest, which also happens to be helmed by a Milwaukee-based filmmaker. It's Pet Names by Carol Brandt. 
And we'll, uh, we'll link to my interview with her in the podcast post. In fact, some of the coolest filmmakers I've met over the last couple years are from that area. And so big shout out to Milwaukee, its film scene, and its festival. And sorry if you're a Brewers fan. Um, I was rooting for you. I hate the Dodgers. Go Red Sox? Are you, you're from Boston, right? I like I like the Red Sox. Okay, go it's Red Sox. It's hard in New York, but I do like the Red Sox. I know. I'm coming back to I was just in L.A., and now I'm coming back to a place that's obviously going to be cheering the Dodgers because uh, they hate the Red Sox, but I hate the Dodgers. Oof, okay. It's like a hierarchy. It's going to be hard to live in L.A. if I do end up out there because... Well, especially if you grew up an SF Giants fan, too. Oh, yeah. SF Giants all the way. (laughs) That's what we call them. (laughs) What do you call them? (laughs) Yeah, that's good. All right. (laughs) So now for next week's podcast on Monday, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, I'll be releasing a conversation I had with Steve Yoon, uh, who is in Burning. Uh, He was in Sorry to Bother You, and he's really having a great year after sort of being uh, typecast as this one uh, Asian dude over and over again and trying to get past uh, his his role as Glenn in The Walking Dead. Uh, you know, a lot of actors have difficult TV actors especially have difficulty shedding their the uh, audience's perception of them. And he did it pretty well this year. Uh, he worked with both Boot Riley and Chang Dong Lee um, and was in two of the biggest indie movies this year. And he's honestly a really, really cool dude. Uh, We talk about what it's like to have to shed those perceptions, working with two really unique uh, independent film directors, and what you can do as a director to make your own actors more comfortable on set. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that's it for today's show. You can, of course, read about everything you've heard on this show and more on nofilmschool.com. As always, just a reminder to please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Um, I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. No, I don't think we have to. We can't do it anymore. I feel like I just need a little moment of silence for Jim, John, Jim, John, Jim. We got three star. We got a three star review telling us that this is not a moment of silence. You're still talking to unsubscribe from the podcast if we continue the joke. And I'm with you, man. Yeah, you know what he said. He's um, he's listened to a thousand episodes, which I thought was really impressive too. Thank you. So hey, we haven't even made that. Many. We have like two. We have a quarter of that many. Anyway, I'm gonna have to do it one more time since we didn't have a moment of silence. You just couldn't okay, help well, can, yourself. Okay, so you just want to do the moment of silence. Yeah, moment of okay, silence. Moment of silence. If you say anything, I'm gonna edit it out. You just said something. You're terrible at this. Anyway, I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. We're all at No Film School, and we will see you next week. Thanks, guys.